mic up. There we are. So these are the Easter flyers that we want you to grab at the counter. And it basically says, Elevate Miami Church invites you to celebrate Easter with us. And then it gives them a little how-to. So we want to encourage you to grab these. And then the other way you can interact and live on mission and do the things that Jesus would have you to do this Easter is um, we're doing a little social media. So if you go to Elevate Miami Church's Facebook page, we have a bunch of things on the Facebook page that we want to encourage you to, sh to share. Like if you just take the video that we posted, which is just the animated video of the Invite Bunny going techno, and uh, that's on our Facebook page, and just share it, it's got its own invitation attached to it. Or if you take one of the, um, uh, just the standard, uh, we have this sort of this flyer, I think this one's up. There's a couple different ones that are just graphics that are up on the Facebook page. And all you gotta do is share it on your page. So you can be, you can be a missionary in like two minute missionary if you just start sharing it, you can be a social media missionary. So we wanna encourage you to do that. We wanna encourage you to interact and participate and invite some people to Easter services this year. So we're going to do, uh, we're doing a, the next three weeks, we're going to be talking uh, a little more in depth. We're going to show you some things about Jesus and give you some insights into some of the things that he did and experienced. And so the next three weeks, uh, well, this week in particular, it's, there's not going to be, there's going to be some life application to it. But really what I want to focus on is I just want to share with you some stories about the Lord. I want to share with you in particular one story about the Lord, and I want to give you some insight into who he is. So this morning we're talking about finding light. Next slide. Without light, there would be no life, right? Can we agree with that? There'd be no life. One of the things is plants need light in order to create their food. So plants create life. It, light gives the plant its food through the product of that fancy word we should have learned in biology class called photo. Yes, you're great. So um, they taught us well. So photosynthesis, so plants get their food and their life from the, plant, from, the, from the sun. And plants, of course, trees in particular, create oxygen. They take out the carbons in the air, and they create oxygen. So if we didn't have trees, we wouldn't have oxygen. If we didn't have light, we wouldn't have trees. If we didn't have trees, we wouldn't have oxygen. If we didn't have oxygen, we wouldn't have people. So we need light. Plants require it. And here's an interesting thing I found, because I was looking up some things about light. Um, that did you know? Did you know? So you're gonna, you're gonna give you something here this morning, and uh, I verified this with diff several different sites, so you can check me on this. What happens when, when a human is not exposed to light is that we go into mild forms of depression. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? Anybody who's lived up north when it snows all the time and you don't see the light, the sun for months, you wonder why everybody in that everybody in town has a mild form of depression on them. <laughs> well, they're not seeing light. And then imagine yourself where you're cooped up in the house all the time, and then you actually go out in the sun. And you're like, wow, you feel better, and you don't even know why, because you're out in the sun. So not only does light kind of lift us that way, one of the things light does to us biologically is that, and I didn't know this, is that when light, sunlight in particular, hits the skin, it synthesizes um, cholesterol cells and converts and creates a vitamin in our body that is not possible without the sunlight. It creates a vitamin, vitamin D3. And what D3 is necessary for is uh, healthy cell reproduction and also a healthy liver. So not only does uh, sunlight affect us as humans, uh, emotionally, it also affects us biologically. So we need the sun. Uh, you need sunscreen too, by the way, so don't notice that. So without light, we cannot see. So light is a necessity to life. Without light, we can't see. Without life, we're walking in the darkness. Can we agree with that, right? Okay, we go to, my wife typically goes to bed before me, right? 
and, and so I try to go, when I go to bed, I, it, everything's dark in the room, eh? and so I don't want to wake her up, and so I'm kind of creeping in the, you know, I get here. In the, in the room, and, and when it's dark, man, I always, like, I probably have bruises on my shins and my toes, because the, the bottom of our, the bed, like, the, the rail of the bed is, like, wooden, it's like a low bed, and so it's, like, wooden, and so, like, I'm, bam, hitting the bed and all this other stuff, and I'm knocking myself around because I can't see, so anybody know what I'm talking about, where you run into things and you knock yourself out, so light is really, not only does it give us a physical direction, but without light, we cannot see truth. Without light, we cannot see things as they really are. And so when things are held up to the light, we can really get an image of what this thing really is when it's held up close and in the light. And so Jesus is the light. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. It's speaking metaphorically of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So he's part of the Trinity. And the Word was God himself, so he's equal Co-regency. The Godhead is a co-regency. Equality of Father, Son, and Spirit. In the beginning, the Word was with God. All things were, came into existence through Him. So Jesus is the author or the agent of creation. Tells us the same thing in Colossians. He created all things and hold things all together by the Word of His power. So Jesus is the one who is, he is, he is literally the agent involved in the creation. In Him was life and power, and that life was the light of men. So Jesus is the light. So the world and you and I were created by light, not just physical light, but the, the true light. And this light, the light of Christ, shines into the darkness. Darkness cannot understand it. Darkness cannot overpower it. Darkness cannot control it. And darkness cannot absorb it. Amen. Come on. There is no darkness that can overcome the light of the gospel. There is no darkness that it can overcome the light of truth. There is no darkness that can overcome the light of salvation. There is nothing. Your life is not too dark that the light of God cannot penetrate it. Your life is not so broken that the light of God cannot penetrate it. There is no darkness in your life that can overcome the light that has been given to you. Sin abounds, we're much, we're, but grace does much more abound. Greater is he, the light that is in us, than he, the darkness that is in the world. We are greater. The power of God is in us, and there is no darkness that can overcome or overpower us. You're actually a mystery. The light that is within you is a mystery to people. Everybody ever be a Christian, and you're like, they're full of the love of God, and people always wonder, why, why are you so nice? What's wrong with you? What's, what's your, you're a mystery. They don't understand you. Because the light of Christ is in you. So the darkness is, that's in them, they're looking at it and like, I don't understand you. And it's not that they're dark, it's just that they don't know the Lord at that point. So here's just a little run-through of the gospel. This is kind of the story of creation. And when I learned these things, you want to talk about light. When I came to Christ and I began to learn, particularly about the fall of man, the light literally went on for me. I began to understand and see the world as it really was. Understand why the world is the way that it is why I am the way that I am, and understanding that I'm fallen, understanding that the world has fallen, understanding that the culture has fallen, understanding that man has fallen. We all have a common ancestor, okay? We are not, the Bible doesn't teach in forms of race. Culture teaches in forms of race. The Bible teaches in terms of ethnos, ethnicity, differences among the same common line of people. So we're not different. We're all united with one common ancestor. Our common ancestor is Adam. And Eve, we all come from one ancestor. And as we all came through that same ancestor, we all bear one blood. 
When our common ancestor rejected God, this is what Adam did. Adam rejected the notion of God ruling him. He wanted to rule himself. And so Adam traded the beauty of God for a mirror. And that's how man became the narcissist that we are. We love to worship ourselves. And I was like, man, you're beautiful, but I really like looking at myself. I think I'm going to trade that for this. And so that's really what he did. He became like God. And that's what we see. That's our problem today is self-worship, self-idolatry. And that's where when we come back to Christ and you give your life to Jesus, we call him, do we call, when we confess Jesus as friend, is that what we do? No. Do we confess Jesus as big brother? Not when we're getting saved. We confess him as what? Lord, Adonai, is the bowing of the heart. I no longer rule, you rule. It is the realignment with our created position. Man was created to live and rule under the lordship of Christ. We're created to be rulers. We're created that way. But we're not created to be self-orienting rulers. We're created to be rulers under the lordship of Christ. And so when we come back to Christ, we acknowledge him as Lord. That's a big understanding for people when they come to Christ, is your life no longer belongs to you. And when every time I personally lead somebody to the Lord, I always tell them that. Do you understand you're giving your life away? You understand that? Because that's really what the Bible's telling you. You're giving your life away. Your life is no longer yours. And my life was so shot out, I'm like, Jesus wants this, he can have it. <laughs> He's going to give me that for this? I'll take the trade. That sounds like a good deal to me. <laughs> you want to hang on to it a little more? You want to hang on a little longer? Yeah. But that's really what it is, is we acknowledge him as Lord, and we come back to him in lordship. So Adam rejected God ancestor, ancestrally, and all of humanity was born into darkness. Darkness has befallen the world. Mankind is without light. We do not have light apart from Christ. Look around. We are lost emotionally. We are lost physically. We are lost spiritually. She wants a bagel. Give that girl a bagel. <laughs> she wants to, we're lost spiritually, we're lost relationally, we're lost environmentally. Mankind is utterly lost. We don't know where we belong. We don't know how to relate to each other. We don't know who God is. We're just flipping coins guessing. That's really what we are without Christ. We don't know who we are. We have no idea even who we are. That's why there's rows of self-help books. That's why Dr. Phil is so popular. You know, he's going to tell you who you are and what you need to do, at least in his own understanding. We're lost. It's a world, and the, re the reason for that lostness is because our ancestor cast, he, Adam was given dominion. He was the, what, what the Bible would call, or what theologians would call, a federal head. In other words, he was the fountainhead of all humanity. And so as the fountainhead goes, so goes the rest. And so Jesus is now, as a Christian, he's become our fountainhead. So as he goes, now we go. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad about that? That's good. We're not under Adam anymore. We're under Christ. The Bible says Jesus is the last Adam. He came to fulfill what Adam failed at. Right? He's the last Adam. As sin entered the world through one man, Adam, so now righteousness enters the world through one Christ. So in Adam, all were born into sin. So in Christ, all can be born in righteousness. Aren't you glad? That's good news. Doesn't mean all are, but all can be. When our ancestor rejected, darkness fell in the world. We were without light. God chose to create man. This is the theology of the scripture. This is what the Bible teaches. God, mankind fell into darkness. The Lord, through generations, found a man. His name was Abraham. He chose Abraham. And through Abraham, he created a nation and a people. And to this nation and his people, he gave to these people, he created them, this people to entrust with his promises. He's like, I need to get a people to myself that I can give my promises to. 
I need to get a people to myself that I can raise up prophets from among them that will speak on my, on my behalf. I need to give a people to that I can entrust my word and all of the things that I'm going to do in the future. And he chose those people, and they were Israel. And he gave them his prophets, he gave them his promises, and he gave them his spirit. And the whole purpose of choosing this nation wasn't so that they would be above everyone. The whole purpose of choosing this nation was that so they would be a road sign pointing to the Jesus of the Messiah that was going to come. That was their whole point. Chosen. Jews were a chosen race. Everybody said, oh, Jews were a chosen race. And I've had Jews, people tell me, even as I've talked to uh, Jews before, they're like, you know we're the chosen race. I'm like, yeah, you know what for? They don't, you know? And I'm like, you were chosen to reveal the Messiah. That's why you were chosen. You were not chosen because you're special. The Bible even tells them. God tells them because they were proudful in their, we were the chosen of God. And the Lord's like, you think I chose you because you were the greatest of all people? I chose you because you were the least. You were the lowest of all people because he was demonstrating his glory and he was going to testify before the world that I can take the lowest, worst, offcast of humanity and I can raise them up to the highest. I can take Jacobs who are self-natured and self-oriented and I can make them princes and princesses, Israel's. That's what Israel means. Israel means prince of God. You're prince and princess of God. Jacob is heel catcher. That's why the name Jacob and Israel are intertwined because God is showing the transference of a nature. I will take the Jacob. Jacob was self-centered. Jacob was all about himself, demonstrating the old man, and he became this. So God is showing transference. He's showing that I can take that and make them this. I can take them that and make them this. See the same thing with Simon Peter, right? See Simon who became Peter. And every time Simon, every time Peter was doing something stupid, Jesus would call him Simon. As if to tell him, Simon, you're acting like your old self again. That's not who you are. I told you to be Peter and you're playing Simon. Simon says, no, not Simon says, Jesus says. That's where it goes. <laughs> and so he entrusts these people, and the purpose of these people were to point the way to the Messiah. Next slide. To these people, this is a beautiful story, he gave these people seven feasts. In the book of Leviticus, Moads, he gives them seven feasts, holy convocations, divine appointments and holy convocations. That's what the Lord tells them. These are the feasts of the Lord. They belong to me. People say they're the feasts of Israel. The Bible doesn't say that. It says they're the feasts of the Lord not the feasts of Israel. Why are they the feasts of the Lord? Because they are, they are feasts, they're parties. Jesus likes to party. Say it with me. You can, you can say that. It's a church. Jesus likes to party. You don't think he likes to party? He's got seven parties in the Bible. Seven. And only one of them, only one of them is where they, they had to do anything that was anything like this. Only one of them was a lamenting feast. All other six of them, they were to party. One of them, the last feast, God says, you will show no sorrow on this day. Feast of Tabernacles. There will be no sorrow, but I feel really down. <laughs> Wipe the tears off your eyes and get happy. Awake my soul. Okay, the Day of Atonement, they could all get sad and lament and repent and all of that stuff. But on the Feast of Tabernacles, the Lord declared there would only be joy on that day. Only. Because it points, the Feast of Tabernacles points, it's an appointment that God will fulfill. You look at the feasts of the Lord, they're prophetic fulfillments. Four have been fulfilled, three are yet to come. And the Feast of Tabernacles is the last feast on the calendar. And what does it point to? It points to what Revelation says. The tabernacle of God is now with men. And he will what? Wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more sorrow, there will be more suffering. That's why he tells them, when you're celebrating tabernacles, I want you to reflect the day that will come. 
I want you to show the day when I come and tabernacle and inhabit with you and there's no more sorrow. That's what he's telling them. So these feasts are given to the, this nation as, four, as seven prophetic markers pointing into the future. And it's the, literally the, the, the redemptive plan of God can be traced. There's many ways God gave his plan to these Jewish people. He gave it to he related it to him in many different ways. But in, he gave them a very simple way of understanding what his plan looked like. And they looked like the seven feasts. Passover is the first one. Okay? Then we have Passover. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then we have the Feast of First Fruits. Then we have the Day of Pentecost. Then we have the Feast of Trumpets. And then we have the Day of the Lord. And then we have the Feast of, of the, 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 uh, the Day of Atonement. Then we have the, uh, which is the Day of the Lord. Then we have the, uh, um, the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus was crucified on Passover. So for thousands of years, they celebrated Passover. Jesus wasn't crucified on Easter. Okay, it's important to know. How did we get Easter? Well, here's a little side note. We got Easter because long ago, some people decided, Constantine and the, the Catholic Church in particular, decided they didn't like the Jews. And they didn't like the Christians intermingling with the Jews. For whatever reason, they didn't like it. And they felt that when Passover came around, the Christians would go worship in these ways, and they felt like that's a threat to their positional power. And so they decided, we're going to create a festival. So they did it for two reasons. One was to distinguish the church from Judaism, and the second was to try to reach pagans. And so they broke the church away from Passover, creating the new day on the Feast of Ishtar, which is where we get the word Easter from. And so we get the word Easter. So they took Passover and made it Easter, trying to, again, break away the church from Judaism, and then at the same time, trying to put a festival or a Christian festival in the middle of a pagan festival. That's what they did. Is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know, but that's where we are today. That's what it is. So it's just, you know, what are we not celebrate Easter? Yeah, but it's, I celebrate Easter. I'm not celebrating Ishtar, but I celebrate the resurrection on that day, but I know Jesus was crucified on Passover. Jesus rose, that's when he was crucified. And so we've kind of lost a little bit of the narrative or a little bit of the story because we've done that. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, okay, there you go. So now you know where Easter Bunny comes from because Ishtar was a festival of reproduction. It was the, literally the rites of spring. That's why we get bunnies. Why? Because bunnies reproduce. That's why we get eggs, because eggs represent fertility. And so it was a fertility festival. You know, new life was basically the idea, new life. And so they said, oh, Jesus is new life. Let's put Jesus right. And hey, it's real close to Passover, so why don't we just move it over here? <laughs> Seems like a good idea. Who knew? You know, but anyway, that's, why we, that's, where we, that's where it comes from. But it's just important for you to understand that because if you don't understand that, you don't understand that Jesus fulfilled that. Passover was fulfilled. It was a feast that was fulfilled. So Passover and unleavened bread, I'm not going to, I don't know why I'm going off on a feast of the Lord, but I guess I will. So Passover and unleavened bread began on the same day. And so what it was, was Christ was crucified, the Passover lamb, and then it was sinlessness. So for seven days, they were, seven, seven is the number of completion, seven days they were to eat bread without yeast or leaven, which meant sin. So Christ is crucified and creates a perfection of sinlessness. That's the message. In the middle of that, the third day, so three days, literally, so we have Passover. Three days later, there's another festival. Well, who, who knew? What could that possibly mean? And it's the Feast of first fruits. The barley harvest. So you have Passover. Three days later, bam, you've got barley harvest. And then, and then that whole week, you're celebrating this, the completion of sinlessness. That's the idea. Christ crucified. Third day, Christ resurrected. And sinlessness is complete. That's the message. He fulfilled those three. You understand that? 
So that's the point. That's what he's trying to get across. And so Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. He is the fulfillment of the feast of first fruits. He's the fulfillment of unleavened bread. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He's the unleavened bread so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The fourth feast is the day of Pentecost, right? So feast of Pentecost, according to Acts 2, has been fulfilled. The Holy Spirit has come. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad? You know, the Spirit of God has come. God promised an appointment. On that day, I will send the Spirit. Inside of these feasts, these seven feasts of the Lord, God called them appointments. In other words, on this day, at some point, I'm going to fulfill it. I have an appointment that I'm going to keep and meet, right? And he told the people, during these feasts, it was participatory, right? Jesus likes interaction. We have lost the idea of congregational interaction in our American church because we kind of come out of Reformation where everybody's, you know, we, we you know, the, the, the monks and the chanting and the shh, we're in God's house. That's what we've been taught. Those are traditions not according to Scripture. Those are traditions that came out of, out of a Reformation and out of a tradition of men. Shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph. It's in the Bible. Dance before him, leap for joy, sing in the assembly of the saints. All of those things. Nowhere does it say, shh, you're in God's house. Chant, Gregorian chants. Oh, oh. Nothing wrong with Gregorian chants. They're actually quite cool and quite meditative. But we've adopted that as our style, and that's what we're supposed to be. It wasn't like that. So God creates these feasts, and inside the feasts, he's like, I want you to do something. So you're not just going to sit there. You all are going to do something with me while we do this. And so, for instance, at Passover, all of the people had to participate. They had to get a lamb, right? Every family. They all had to show up, or at least the father had to show up. You were required to be there. One member of the household had to be there at Passover. So regardless of where they went, they had to go to Jerusalem. They had their little synagogue in town, but they couldn't celebrate their synagogue. They couldn't celebrate Passover in their synagogue. They were required to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. So they had to leave where their local assembly was, and they had to go to Jerusalem, and they had to celebrate. The whole family didn't have to come. God kind of, there's grace upon that, you know, women and small children and the whole deal or older people, but a representative of every household had to come, a male representative, a dude had to show up there, right? So the wife's probably going, well, why are you going? I mean, like, I want to go too. All right, baby, paddle up the bank, let's go, you know, so. Anyway, so the man, they had to go. And when they were in Jerusalem during Passover, everybody was required to do this. They had to get a lamb. They had to take the lamb home. They had to hold the lamb in the house for three days, love the lamb, cuddle the lamb. The lamb couldn't stay outside. The lamb had to be in the house. Huh? Anybody watch a dog, somebody else's dog, if it's a really cute little fluffy little dog for a couple of days? First day, you're like, oh, I can't believe I'm watching this dog. Then by day three, day three you're like, oh, you're so cute. I just love you, right? We fall in love with the animal. That's the idea. God's like, you're going to bring the lamb into the house, not outside, and you're going to bond with the animal. You're going to sit at the table, and little Larry the lamb's going to come, and you're going to feed him from your hand. That's how it's going to work. You're going to bond with this lamb, and then three days later, you're going to march that lamb up the hill, and you're going to watch it die. That's what you're going to do. And I'm going to tell you a story while I'm doing that, because I'm going to send someone who's extremely important to me, and who has been with my, in my household, or the father is sending the one who is closest to him, and he's going to send him into another household, and he's going to watch him march a hill, and he's going to watch him die. That's the story. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And so that was what they were. They were supposed to go, Daddy, why are they killing the lamb? That was the point. 
because the lamb brought us out of Egypt. The lamb brings us out of sin. The lamb brings us into promise. That's the point. That was the whole purpose of that. There was a participatory action that they had to take. Okay? They had other things. Like one of my favorites is during the Feast of um, uh, Pentecost, they would go out to the field. I can't remember which harvest it was. And they would gather the, the sheave of the harvest. And so whatever the sheave, the priest would come in and declare the time of the harvest. Right? So it's a declaration of harvest time. And when they would go out, so all the priests would go out, woo, yeah, you know, kind of go out. Dude would cut the sheave. I got the sheave, man. And then everybody else would grab the, <laughs> everybody else would grab palm fronds, right? And they would walk towards the temple. So they would go out into the field, grab the sheath, and then they would walk back towards the temple with these palm fronds, these big palm fronds, and everybody would be thrushing the palm fronds down. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. What's that sound like? Sounds like rushing wind, right? And so God, they had to go and thrush wind towards the temple while carrying the first fruits of the harvest. Well, what happened on the day of Pentecost? A rushing wind came through the temple, right? God fulfilled the dress rehearsal. They were rehearsing this for centuries. Centuries they were rehearsing this. So when it happened, they should have known what was going on. They should have been like, whoa, we've been doing that since I was like two, man. Did you see that? They should have got the connection. And so the, th the rushing wind comes through the temple. This is what we see in the book of Acts. And then immediately following, we see the first fruits of the harvest, right? 5,000 people come to Christ through the rushing wind with the first fruits of the harvest in fulfillment of the feast. So every feast had this interaction. Every feast had a participation. We see this in John chapter 7 and 8. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Everything that's going to go on that I'm going to talk about relates back to this feast. What's going on here in this feast? Well, some of the traditions of the feast, and you're going to see this in chapter 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles was a remembrance of the time when the nation was in the wilderness. So God brought them out of Egypt. They didn't want to listen to him, and so he let them wander around the wilderness for 40 years. How many knows it's better to listen to the Lord than wander in a wilderness for 40 years? Right? I don't need to listen to God. Okay. Round the mountain you go. They spent 40 years of playing Here We Come Round the Mountain. They probably had that song memorized. Here we come around the mountain when we come. You know, they probably like, you know, they were running around the mountain for 40 years until they all dropped dead because they refused to listen to the Lord, right? And so they celebrated this time of being in the wilderness where they tented, tabernacled with the Lord. God was with them. He brought them water from a rock, remember? He brought them bread from heaven, manna, and he brought them, uh, and he brought, what else did he bring them? Oh, and he was their light. He was their cloud by day and their fire by night. So they had these celebrations within the feast that played back into that storyline. One of the traditions was, or the, the lines of the participation, the priests would go to the pool and they would fill these big pitchers with water. And they would carry them back up to the top of the temple steps with the crowd assembled. The people would gather. It was a big ritual. And so everybody would be assembled. And the priest would stand up, probably the high priest, and he would declare a verse from the Psalms saying, Freely we draw waters of life from the wells of salvation. They would declare this, this psalm, and the priest would dump the water down the stairs. And the water would rush down the stairs towards the people. Jesus, in John chapter 7, is in the Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem for this reason. And what does he do? While the water's coming down the stairs. We don't read that in the text, but that's what was going on. We do read this. Jesus stands up and goes, I'm the water of life. All who are thirsty come to me. At the moment, what is he telling them? I am the rock in the wilderness. I am the water of life in the wilderness. The water your ancestors drank from is standing right here, right now. 
And so he was standing there, standing in the moment when they were doing these feasts, and he was projecting back to them and giving them understanding into the tradition that the one that this is all about is standing right here. Standing right here. I'm right here. In John chapter 8, which is he's still in the Feast of Tabernacles, what would happen is this is an interesting story, so this will give you some understanding as you're reading your Bible. And you read your Bible and you read about these places like the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles. God prescribed the people to build a building. God was not the building. The building was not God, but God wants a place to assemble, right? He wants a place where everybody can get together and everybody can come together. He wants a place of assembly. It's what he wants. And he told them to do certain things in the place of assembly. He told them to make three courts, an outer court, an inner court, and a holy of holies. That's all he told them to do. Well, what the Jews decided to do was advance upon that idea. And so they looked down on women, and they looked down on Gentiles. So Gentiles basically is a non-Jew. And so they created two extra courts. They created the court of the Gentiles, and they created the court of women. So if you were a woman, you couldn't go past the court of women. Why? Did Jesus say that? Did the Bible say that? No, but they said that, right? And if you were a Gentile or an unprocessed Gentile, the furthest you could go, you could go a little further than the women, but you couldn't go into the court of the priests or you couldn't go into the next place. You couldn't go to the outer places. You had to stay in the court of the Gentiles. So the court of the Gentiles is where Jesus turned over all the money changers. And so the Jews being, you know, well, we'll just, we'll, we'll do all of our buying and selling over here amongst the dirty Gentiles, you know. And so they were, that's what they basically, they turned the court of the Gentiles. That, that, it's that court where Jesus flipped the tables. But in the court of the women, which if you were a non-converted Jew, you had to stay, the closest you could come was the court of the women. If you were a woman, even if you were born a Jew, and you were, could trace your bloodline directly to Abraham himself, you couldn't go past the court of women. They had laid this tradition down. People could go no further. Where do we find Jesus? Huh? We so often find him where? In the court of the women, amongst the people who could go no further. Jesus had the right to walk right into the Holy of Holies. He could go further than any, any, anyone there. He had the right of the temple, of, the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the priests, the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. He could have went right in there and stood there in the Holy of Holies and, you know, shekinahed, man. He could have manifested glory right there. But that's not what he chose to do. He sits among the people who can go no further. What good news. And so Jesus, oftentimes you're reading stories, you find him in the court of the women. This is one of the stories. In the court of the women, they had, so the court of the women, which is the outer court, that's where they took up the offering. So the offering, they had, what they had is they had 13, I don't know, there's a reason behind the 13, and I'm not going to prophetically get into that, but there's, they had 13 uh, offering stations around the, uh, the, the court of the women. And what they were was they were like these brass horns or these horns that went down into a box. And so what they would do when they gave their offering is they would put their offering, hello, in a box, right? But we don't sound trumpets. And it would make a noise. So when the rich guy came in and he dumped his coins in, whoosh, crowd would go, wow. You know, that's what they wanted. They wanted everybody to see. <clears throat> I'm about to give my offering. Whoosh. <gasps> the widow came in. She tinks the mites in. Two pennies. Boom, boom. That's where Jesus was. What was he doing? He was in the temple of, the, of God, in the court of the women, right? Watching the treasury. That was another story in the scripture. He's in the court of the, he's in the, court of the women again. And he's watching the treasury. And the disciples are all like all freaked out. Man, that dude just dropped coin, bro. Yo. And then the other lady throws in two pennies. And he said, she gave all she had. This guy gave out of his abundance. He gave lunch money. She gave everything. Which one gave more? She gave. That's right. She gave and it hurt. He gave, it didn't hurt. Didn't cost him anything. He could have given way more than that. 
He just wanted to impress everybody. But the Lord knew that he could have given more. That's the story. But so there's another story with Jesus in the court of the Gentiles, or excuse me, the court of the women. In John chapter 8, he says, I'm, as he's standing in the court of the women, he says, I'm the light of the world. Well, that verse is connected to what just happened prior. Here's Jesus hanging out again in the court of the women, okay? You know, women, you would, I, I read this oftentimes in the text, and it's so powerful how women lavished love upon Jesus. There has never been a greater emancipator of women than Jesus. There will never be a greater emancipator of women than Jesus. Why did they flock to him? Why did they love him? Because he emancipated them. In that culture, you couldn't talk to a rabbi. Jesus is like, who told you that? Sits right down and starts talking with women. You know, it's like, I never said that. You couldn't, you couldn't even discuss worship or theological things with a rabbi, let alone talk to him. Yet here we see him with a woman at the well who's a Gentile, a non-Jew. So she's not only a woman, she's not even a Jew, she's a non-Jew, and he's conversing with her on theological matters. You see a Syrophoenician woman, a Syrian Phoenician woman. That's why the Bible keeps going, woman, woman. Woman, it's not a Syrophoenician man, Syrophoenician woman. In that culture, if you were a Syrian Phoenician, you were the worst of the worst. They were a very wealthy culture, but they were extremely pagan. They had plenty of money. They were merchant traders, right? They were the Phoenicians, and so they were very wealthy merchant people, but they were very dark in their worship. And to the Jew, they were the worst. If you were cross paths with a Syrophoenician, or if a Syrophoenician crossed paths with a Jew in Israel, they would beat him. Man, woman, boy, girl, child. You do not cross the path of a Jew, Syrophoenician. That's how degraded they were. And yet we see Jesus sitting there, and she comes up, and she says, heal my daughter. And he says, you don't give what's holy to dogs. And she says, yes, master, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And he went, all right, then. You can have it. Why did he call her a dog? He was seeing if she was going to be humble. That's the idea. Are you going to be humble? Is she going to stand up and go, how dare you call me a dog? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I do? You know, she didn't. She said, I know, I'm not worthy. He's telling her, I have no covenant right with you. Be grateful for the rain. Be grateful for the food on your table. I give you basic provision. I am God. I give basic provision to all. But covenant rights are only for covenant people. Christian, covenant rights are only for covenant people. The bread belongs to the children. You have access to things that nobody else has access to. You say, what does that look like? Begin to ask him, what do I have that other people don't because I'm in you? I mean, the Bible proclaims it. Yet Jesus here is talking to a Syrian Phoenician woman. And that's why. And in John chapter 8, what's happening here in this verse is they bring a woman to him caught in adultery. Where is he? He's in the temple of the women, court of the women. They throw the woman down. This woman's been caught in adultery. Law says she dies. What do you say? Better yet, Moses says she dies. What do you say? Jesus is just writing in the dirt. Writing down the dirt. People always ask, what's he, what's he writing in the dirt? Some say his name, some say sin. The Bible tells you what he's writing in the dirt. Jeremiah 17. All who depart from the Lord, will be written, their names will be written in the earth. He's writing their names. They, he speaks to them in line of their prophets. When Jesus is speaking to them, he's speaking to them in the language of the scripture, the scripture that they were required to know. They were required to know the scripture from the time they were children all the way through to adults. They were required to know it. 
And so when Jesus is speaking to them, he's speaking to them in a language that they were required to know. That's why he looks at, that's why he looks at Nicodemus and says, haven't you read? Dude, really? You don't understand this? You're teaching the people and you don't get this? Seriously? When he told the Pharisees, haven't you read, haven't you read, haven't you read? But when he's writing on the, writing on the dirt, they would know that. They were required to memorize books, memorize them. And so he's writing their names in his hand. Law says she should die. She was caught in the act of adultery. Jesus should have asked, where's the dude? Isn't there two people required for adultery? Why are you only bringing the woman? Where's the dude? Isn't he required to die too? Oh, we modestly forgot that one, didn't we? Anyway, writes in the dirt, writes in the dirt, writes in the dirt. And he says, any of you without sin? There's the rocks. Have at it. In other words, I know you. I know your names. I know all of you. I not only know your names, I know everything you've done, and I know why you've done them. And if you really want to get technical on the law, all of you should die. None of you should live. So if you think you can stand up to that, then have at it. And they all left. They knew what he was doing. He wrote their name. Can you imagine? You're coming up, Jesus doesn't know me. She's going to die, Lord. I've been practicing my fastball. She's going to die. And then all of a sudden I look down and there's my name in the dirt. And he's pointing at it. He said, are you without sin? How did he know his name? Well, duh, you know. And this happened. And after that, Jesus stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He tells her, does anyone condemn you? No. And he says, then, go, then I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. And he says, I'm the light of the world. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness. What is he saying? I am not the light of judgment. I have not come into this world to bring judgment. He tells us that in John again. Son of, God is not, Son of man has not come into the world to judge the world but that through him the world would be saved. Judgment is for an appointed time. He has set it aside in favor of grace. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And he has come to bring mercy in extraordinary proportion to his judgment. And so he tells her, and he says, I'm the light of the world. I have come to bring the light of truth. I have come to bring the light of grace. He's standing in the court of the women, significant to those. Why is he saying that? Because the women would light the courtyard with candles during the Feast of Tabernacles. So the women, it was like a party. They probably had like a candle dipping party or something. You know, they're probably all like, oh, did you see Susie's candle? Oh, that girl, she's always making, trying to outdo everybody. She thinks she's, she thinks she's better because she makes the big candle. You know, they're probably trying to, but they had a candle party. They would, the women would light the courtyard with candle at night during the Feast of Tabernacles to celebrate that God was the fire in the night. The, the historian Josephus says that the courtyard of the women's of the court of the women glowed like a diamond during the during the Feast of Tabernacles. Why did it glow? Because they didn't have lights. Everybody used oil. You know, they either had candles. So you imagine they put thousands of candles in a dark city in the middle of the night, and you could just see this light coming from where? The place where people could go no further. That's where the light is. That's where Jesus is. He's at the place where people can go no further. That's good news, man. I don't know about you. That's good news to me. Because there's, there's plenty of times where I can't go any further. And the Lord is right there. In every place in my life where I can go no further, that's where he is. He's in the temple treasury, the court of the women. He says he's the light of the world. He tells him his authority comes from above. I just want to show you Jesus. That's the point with this message. He humbled himself beneath heaven. He walked in the authority of heaven upon the earth. So Jesus co-region of heaven, co-equal with God, equal to the Father, equal to the Spirit, and he is equal. So they are all co-equal, co-regent God, yet one. Jesus humbled himself. 
In order for mankind to be saved, he must become like us. So he set aside his position, he set aside his deity, he set aside his royalty, he took it off as though it were a garment, and he came to become like you and me. He humbled himself beneath his position. He took on the form of a servant. Right? That's the point. And he walked in the authority of heaven. That's why he says, I can do nothing unless the Father instructs me. He could do nothing but by the power of the Spirit. Jesus wasn't manifesting his deity when he was doing miracles. He was manifesting the will of the Father through the power of the Spirit. He had laid it aside. Was he still God? Of course he was God. But he had humbled himself and restrained his thing. That's why he repeatedly says, I can do nothing unless the Father tells me. Why? Because he had laid aside even his self-will. His will was to do the will of the one who sent him. You get the picture? This is what he did. What does it mean? Jesus didn't have a will? Does it mean that he is less than God? That's what people argue. You don't understand. Jesus is not less than God. He's fully God. He laid it aside. He took on the form of doulas, a servant. He became a slave. He enslaved himself to the will of the Father. He couldn't even restore his glory. That's why he says in the garden, Father, restore my glory that I had with you in the beginning, because he had no right to restore his glory. The Father had to restore it. We're talking in first service about how the, how the Godhead is a system of honor, that the kingdom of God is a system of honor. You see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit radically trying to outserve each other. They're constantly trying to outserve each other. The Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Spirit, Spirit glorifies the Son, Spirit glorifies the Father. You know, you're constantly trying to honor each other. And what happens in the scripture, Jesus says, I will honor you and I will honor them because I will humble myself beneath my standing and I will take on the form of a servant and become obedient even to the death of the cross. That's how far he went, the Bible says. Despise the shame, fully shame. This is God we're talking about who knows nothing but beauty, who knows nothing but power, who knows nothing but honor. That's all he knows, yet he took on shame. That's the point. And he humbled himself. And so what God says, what the Father says, is because this is how the kingdom works, this is how we're to be, is constantly trying to out-honor each other. You take the seat. No, you take the seat. No, you take the seat. No, you take the seat. Oh, man, you gave me that seat? Here, here's some tickets to a baseball game. It's a constant outplay of honor. That's how we're to be because that's the heaven that we serve. That's the kingdom we serve. Jesus humbles himself beneath the Father. And what's the Father say? I exalt you above every name. Because you have humbled yourself beneath me, you have a name that is above every name. And that at your name, the nations will bow. Not at my name. Not at the name of the Father. They will bow at the name of Jesus. I exalt you even above myself. Jesus said, restore me back to my position of equality. The Lord says, the Father says to him, in all things that pertain to your work, you are now master and ruler. I yield to you. That's why the Spirit serves the Son. Because all authority has now been given to the Son in the realm of the earth as it comes to the sons of men. The Spirit is co-equal with Christ. The Spirit is not less than Jesus, but the Spirit has humbled himself beneath the will of Christ to manifest the glory of Christ because, the Christ because Jesus humbled himself beneath the Father and the Spirit. You see how this works? It's a constant play of humility. And Jesus is exalted above all. In the kingdom to come, Christ alone sits upon the throne. He sits upon the throne as it comes to humankind. When it comes to us and all things that pertain to us, he alone is the one. All judgment's been given to the Son. The Father judges none. The Father judges none. All judgment's been given to the Son. Why? Because he humbled himself. Therefore, because the Father, Jesus says, exalt me back to my equality. The Father's like, are you crazy? I'm going to honor you. Level up, man. That's how we are to be amongst ourselves. 
as believers. We're to be that type of person, that type of people. Ooh, I got to get all that out, man. I couldn't get that out for service. I'm like pushing that down. I'm like, you know. <laughs> all right, I'm going to go fast. You guys like this? Can we keep going? All right. Okay. So, like, by, by nature, I am an expository teacher. So when it comes to breaking down text, I could teach all day. I teach differently. Most Sundays, you guys don't. This is expository teaching, which I'm giving you verse-by-verse verse breakdowns. Normally, I'm doing, like, Life App, which is a little, like, you know, do this, do that. But, like, my nature is to do expository teaching, so I might get a little long-winded on this. But I'm going to cut it off. I'm going to stop. I won't do it. His authority comes from above. Next slide that he might represent us in salvation, and he models for us the relationship that we have for heaven. Jesus comes and represents us now in heaven. He is now the express representation of us in heaven. In, we are in him, right? And as he is, so are we in this world. Now he shows us that this is how you relate to heaven. How am I supposed to relate to heaven? How did Jesus relate to heaven? How am I supposed to relate to the Father? How did Jesus relate to him? What am I supposed to do with the Holy Spirit? What did Jesus do with the Holy Spirit? He has a model for us. We are to follow his model. We follow him. He's the illumination of all things created. There is no light without him. Two choices. Humankind has two choices. Jesus and darkness, and there's no middle ground. He is the light, not a light. He is the light of the world, all things, not a regional light, not the God of the Jews or the God of the Christians or anything like that. He is sovereign over all of those things. There is no light without him. He's not one among many. He's the one and only. That's what I tell people. Jesus is not one among many. He is in no way, shape, or form equal with Allah. He is no way, shape, or form equal with Muhammad, and you can write that down. <laughs> he is no way, you can quote me on that. He is in no way, shape, or form equal with Krishna, with Buddha, with L. Ron Hubbard, with Tom Cruise. He is in no way, shape, or form equal at all. He alone is exalted. And at the name of Jesus, the, na the nations bow. Him alone. No one else died for you. Allah didn't die for you. Muhammad didn't die for you. Buddha didn't die for you. Nobody died for you. Jesus alone died for you. Fictions and infatuations and imaginations of men. No man creates a God that would die for him. Every God, every God of men, men serve the God. In our economy, God serves us. And because he has served us, now we serve him. Because we loved, because he first we loved because he first loved us. That's the idea. The only reason we're even in this position is because he decided to serve us. That's it. There's no one else is like that. So that's what makes the exclusiveness of the gospel. Oh, you Christians are so one-minded, dang straight. One and only. I don't blink. I got no problem saying it. I'm not gonna text this two-step around that. I know what he's done. I know who he is. I'm not ashamed. Well, we all serve the same God. No, we don't. No, we don't. No, we don't. I serve the one who's true. Jesus is the light of the world. Nothing is understood as it should be without sin. You cannot understand human intellect, emotions, will, sin, salvation, wisdom, or the spirit without Jesus. Man is utterly lost in their intellect. We're intellectual fools. Professing ourselves to become wise, we become fools. Worshiping the creation rather than the creator. We worship our mind. We worship our degrees on the wall. And we think we're intellectually solid and we don't need God. It's the doctrine of Herod. We are all sufficient. We don't need God. Beware of the leaven of Herod. That's the leaven of Herod. Human sufficiency is enough. It's not. It's not. 
What would happen if you gave your intellect into the spirit, and how would God ignite the human intellect? Human intellect's a gift. It's such a powerful gift that we worship it. What would happen if we took the intellect and submitted it under the one who gave it to us? What would happen then? Human emotions are a gift. So powerful, again, are human emotions that we worship our emotions. I feel. I do because I feel. I just do whatever I feel. You're worshiping your emotions. You're following your emotions. That's what? What would happen if you submitted your emotions under the one who gave you the emotions? What would happen then? What would happen if you submitted your will, your, your sin, and all of these things? What would happen if you submitted wisdom and you asked for wisdom and said, Lord, I feel like I have wisdom, but I know you are wisdom, so what would happen here? You see the difference? There's a term called maximized. They, they, years ago, they were using this term about how a person's life is maximized. All the potential is given to you, but your potential can only be maximized in Christ because he's the light. He's the one that ignites it. He ignites the intellect. He gives you vision and insight into purposes and meaning and all of these things only through him. So nothing can be seen as it should be. The light is not foreign to creation. This is important. Jesus isn't the, uh, the trespasser, okay? We treat Jesus like he's the trespasser, like he's intruding on something that belongs to, that, that, that you shouldn't be. He owns it all. He's not trespassing. The light was created, everything was created by the light. Mankind was created to respond to the light. Creation responds to the light. Jesus commanded the wind, the waves, and the seas. Why? It's because the creation was created by the light. He had total authority over it. He would speak to someone and they would shut up. Why? Because he has total authority over all flesh. His words are power. His words are life. And so when he would say something, that's why they couldn't even do anything to him. When he would say stuff, they'd be like, man, I want to kill him, but somehow I don't feel like I can because I'm kind of frozen right here in my steps, and I hope the only thing I can move is my eyeballs, and I hope no one's here in my inner monologue or I'm going to be in trouble. Why? Because all things were affected by the light. Sin, death, suffering, disease, that is what is foreign. What we've been taught is that sin, death, suffering, and disease is what is normal. Sin, death, suffering, disease is what is abnormal. Those are exactly the things that Jesus went right at. Why? Because those are the invaders. He is not the invader. He's, he's Rambo, okay? He's on a mission. And he comes, and what does he do? He confronts sin and casts it out. What does he do? He confronts death and raises it up. He confronts suffering and alleviates it. He confronts disease and casts it away because that is what is foreign to him. That's not foreign to him. That's what's foreign to him. That's what we, we tend to think that that's what's normal because it's what we're taught in our culture, and oftentimes it's what's taught in our churches. If you can understand that death did not come from the Lord, sin does not come from the Lord, suffering does not come from the Lord, and I'm going to back up on that because somebody's already going, wait a minute, Kevin, and so somebody's going to say, well, disease doesn't come from the Lord. It does not. It is all the result of the fall of man. Well, wait a second. The Bible talks about suffering and how we're supposed to suffer for Jesus. If you read it in context, it has nothing to do with physical disease, not one time. Not one time. It talks about suffering because you're a Christian. Being hated, being despised, being thrown out of your job, being spit on, being mocked, being marginalized in society simply for his name. That's what it's talking about when it's talking about suffering. He's not saying, well, God gave you that, so you may as well just enjoy it, and you may as well just suffer it. We teach that, but it's wrong. It's wrong. I don't teach that, but churches teach that. That's not what the Bible teaches. Our theology is wrong. That's not correct. Jesus healed disease. Jesus interrupted every funeral he came across, including his own, right? Jesus sees a funeral. He's like, hold on a second. 
Talitha Kumai, up comes the girl, right? He walks in and he says, she's sleeping. They laugh at him. He's like, oh, y'all don't believe? Okay, so I need you to take all the believers out of the room. That's what he does. They laughed even then. Jesus is like, I'm going to raise her from the dead. They're like, ha, 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 you're going to raise her from the dead. <laughs> they laughed him to scorn. That's what it says. Laughed right in his face when he told him he's going to perform a miracle. And he said, everyone that doesn't believe, you guys can all go stand outside the room. All the believers go stand over there. I need a couple of my disciples. I need mom and dad. Mom and dad, I want you to come in here with me. Walks in, raises the girl from the dead. They didn't laugh when he walked out the door with her. People laugh and they mock the power of God in our generation. It's a shame. All manner of sin against the Father will be forgiven. All manner of sin against the Son will be forgiven, but not all manner of against the Holy Spirit. I tell people, when you profane the name of God and you ascribe evil to a good God, you border on blasphemy. You're right there. You're right there. He's good all the time. That is a lie of the devil. The devil is the accuser of the Father. The devil is the accuser of the Son. The devil is the one who wants to ascribe evil to a good God when it's, in fact, he is the origin of it all. Just saying. <laughs> there is no other light. The day is now. Anyone can come to the light. Everybody needs Jesus. The day is coming when darkness will be completely and utterly exiled. Jesus is coming. Powerful word, Greek word, love to say it. Look for every chance I can to say it just because I love to say it. Palingenesia, I just love that word. And you know what it means? Renewal of all things. That's what it means. When the Son of Man comes, the Bible uses a Greek word called palingenesia. It means he's going to renew everything. All darkness will be completely exiled. Darkness will be no more. That's why in Feast of Tabernacles, no tears, only joy. Because that's the day when the tabernacle of God will be with men. Revelation 21. All darkness will be removed, and Jesus will be the only light. Again, Revelation tells us there will be no sun, for the Lord himself will be the light in that day. What does that mean? I have no idea, but it sounds really cool. I have no idea what that looks like, but I'm like, okay, all right. want to see how that works, but that's going to be awesome. I don't know what it means fully. I mean, other than Jesus is going to be, come on, Kevin, you can't imagine that. Can you really imagine that? Can anybody really imagine Jesus being the light from Jerusalem of the whole world? Can you really imagine emanating light? I mean, we can. But really, what does that look like? Next slide. Light exposes things for what they are. So here's the deal. We come to Christ. He exposes us for where we are. You know? And that's a good thing. It's okay to be shown where you're at. And you know why? Because Jesus loves you too much to leave you where you are. Jesus doesn't show you where you are to put a finger in your face and go, nah, 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 nah. That's not what he does. He shows you where you're at so that you understand the problem. That's it. But we, in our insecurity, we all go, oh, I don't want Jesus to see. I mean, he sees already. You have to go to the Lord. What's my problem? Where am I at? What's my dysfunctions? Where am I at? And he wants you to understand the problem, and then he wants to expose to you the solution. That's what light does. Light shows the problem and exposes the solution. Your life is fixable. Did you know that? So you don't know, Kevin. I've been a Christian, fell off the wagon, did a bunch of crazy things. I don't know if I can be fixed. Oh, who told you that? No, no, I've never been to Jesus. If I gave my life to Jesus, the walls of the church would fall down. Let's try that out. Let's see if that works. Your life is fixable. The power that Jesus releases in the world is resurrection power. The Christians are the carriers of resurrection power. The hunger and the appetite of heaven is to raise the dead. The hunger and the appetite of heaven is to fix the unfixable. That is the appetite of the Father, is to find what cannot be fixed and fix it. He's got to be given permission, of course. 
<laughs> he can't do it without you giving him permission. Are there broken areas in your life? He'll fix them. I had a long time ago, I used to talk, Lord, trying to get God to give me some understanding on what he wants. I don't care what I want. I don't care what anybody else wants. I want what he wants. What do you want? He told me a lot of different things. And one of the things he told me is he told me, tell the people I'm in the restoration business. Make sure they understand I'm in the restoration business. It's what I do. It's all I do. All day, every day. And the other thing he told me to do is teach them to call on me. Teach them to call upon me. Tell them that I am the provision. Tell them that I am the one and to call upon me. Don't teach them about me. Call them into me. And I live by that. So if you ever hear me teach, that's all I come like, man, this guy's always telling us to do something. Uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Light must be followed. So we have the guilt and shame of the believer, and we have the fear and uncertainty of the unbeliever. You have fear and uncertainty of the unbeliever. is nothing to be afraid of because God loves you. Perfect love casts out fear. There's nothing that you've done that he doesn't already know. He knows what you did and why. He knows where you're at. He knows your brokenness. He knows your guilt. He knows what you've done. He knows what's been done to you, and he loves you just the same. So what are you waiting for? To the Christian who lives their life out of guilt and shame and refuses to move forward, I have two words for you, and you can help me out. Say it with me. Get up. Get up. There you go. All through the Bible, we have people that failed. God gives them something. They fail. They screw it up. And God, Lord, they come back. Lord, oh, God, Baba, for me. Oh, you don't understand. Lord's like, get up. Joshua, oh, I tried, Lord. You don't understand. I don't know. Get up. Moses, I don't know if I can go. I can't talk. You know, I stutter. Get up. Peter, get up. So what he told Peter, denying him three times. At the end of the story, read the end of the story. He tells him, follow me. Get up, Peter. Play's over. Yesterday ended last night. You can't change it. Learn from it. Move on. New day. His mercy's new every morning. What? Come on, man. Who's, who's better than that? Right. Do you want me to finish this or you want me to, want me to stop right here? I can stop here. Do you want me to stop here because I'm way over? You got to go? Yeah. I don't know. If you got to leave, I understand. I'll finish it real quick. But I got this slide and I think one more and we're done. Pharisees say to him, you bear witness of yourself. I'm just a chapter. Jesus said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. For where I come from and where I'm going, you do not know where I've come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. That's what he says. Your perspective and your nature and everything you do is according to the, to the, to the ways of men. Yet I do, yet I do not I judge no one. What he's saying, I don't judge according to the flesh. Jesus' perspective is of the spirit. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. Even if I was to judge according to the flesh, I would be right because... I'm right, for I am not alone, but my Father who sent me. They wanted two witnesses, and I'll get that in real quick in a second. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true, so that's what they were asking for. I bear witness of myself, and the Father bears witness of me. What they failed to realize was that the Holy Spirit had already been bearing witness of him through signs and wonders and miracles. The Father who bears witness of me. They said to him, where is your Father? They questioned where he is. Like, oh, aren't you the bastard child of Mary? Aren't you the one that's supposedly virgin-born, you bastard? That's what they were saying to him. So it's a little mild exchange of insults going on here. And Jesus says, you don't know me, and you don't know my father. For if you had known me, you would have known my father. Jesus' words were spoken in the treasury. Here again, the court of the women. And he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. This is really, I want to make a point of this. John is writing this, so John is probably there with him. Jesus is saying all these things to these Pharisees and directing this at, him, at them, probably like very insulting and like they'd never been, you know, correcting them. And John freaks out because no one arrested him. John was probably going, oh. Every time he says, oh, he's probably looking over his shoulder when the temple guard was going to come in and drag him off. Next slide. Light reveals. 
They wanted two witnesses according to the law. That's what they were asking for. We want the witnesses that the law requires. Jesus says, you want two witnesses? No problem. Here they are. He tells them everything that their life is founded upon. This was their insult. Everything about their life was false. Their religion was based upon falsehoods. Their identity, they were sons of Abraham. John, he tells them in John 12, you're not to be sons of Abraham, you're to be sons of the light or sons of the kingdom. They had their identity all wrong. And he tells them your identity is completely wrong. Their traditions were wrong. Their beliefs were wrong. He tells them that their judgment and their worldview is according to men. That's why we are to regard no one according to the flesh. We're to see as heaven sees. That's a development. That's a process, I realize. They question Jesus' origins. The, 